Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book artist, writer and fantastically fun person, Alex Schumacher, about what comics he would take into the apocalypse. But before we get into it, just so you know, this is the last episode of the year before we take a two-week break and return on Monday, 6th of January 2020. Uh, So if you don't listen all the way to the end, have a very merry festive season and a happy new year. Now without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Alex Schumacher. How's it going? Good, Sam. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm even better because we've, we've managed to get you early in the morning. Um, it's, I believe it's about 7.30 in the morning on the west coast of America. So thank you very much for being here. Definitely it is. Yeah, you guys are a little later in the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a wee bit. Um, it's, yeah. it's coming to the end of the working day here and uh, yours hasn't even started. So I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Ah, quite all right. Um, Now, um, for for, for anybody um, that hasn't come across you yet, uh, what do you do in the world of comics? I am a creator. I write and draw uh, a couple of web comics, a weekly called Decades of Inexperience and a monthly satirical strip called Mr. Butter Chips. Um, I have a collection of comics that I've done for literary magazines online that was collected in 2017 in a little book that I self-published. And as of this year, I signed with a literary agent who is pitching my current graphic novel. Awesome. Um, And uh, do do you have any expectations for that at all? I have lots of expectations and whether or not they'll come to fruition is a different matter, I think. (laughs) Well, all the best with that and fingers crossed for, uh, for next year. Um, Thank you. Because that would be, that'd be great to, to see you go from strength to strength. Uh, now, where, yeah. can, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, my main website is alexschumacherart.com. Uh, my Twitter and Instagram are both at ajschumacherart. So it's all you know, pretty standardized. Hmm. And uh, yeah, those are the main places. I'm, I'm, I have a Facebook page, but I'm not really on Facebook this much, that much anymore. Uh, so the website, Twitter, and Instagram would be the best places to stalk me. Fantastic. That's funny because yeah, I'm, I'm starting to really fall, fall off of Facebook myself and just kind of focus on, on Twitter for the most part. Um, yeah, Facebook I don't is know if that's cesspool. a trend now, but I hope it is because yeah. Facebook is a terrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is, isn't it? Um, and uh, I mean, all, all, all the, ki- the kids these days aren't on Facebook anyway, are they? Um, yeah, and it's, really you know, the and internet was supposed to be this amazing thing to democratize us, and it's essentially just become a way to share propaganda and porn. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that's, uh, that's what it is, isn't it? Um, not, not sure that was the initial intent, but. <laughs> uh, no, probably not. Um, well, maybe it was. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, uh, who knows? <laughs> you never know what dark forces are at play behind the internet. Um, right, I'm sure there's plenty. 
Oh, that's for sure, man. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, thanks for, for sharing those links. Um, everybody listening, those links are, of course, in the show notes. So feel free to click through there and check out Alex's work. Um, now, all of that aside, um, I do unfortunately have some bad news for you, Alex. Um, and that is that there is an asteroid heading straight for the west coast of America. Um, oh, boy. Now, um, where, where, where are you based again? So I am in a town called Salinas, which is about 20 miles north of Monterey. That's usually the the touchstone where people know where I'm talking about in California. So it's sort of the central coast. Right, right. Um, so, so basically, I, we're well screwed if an asteroid hits the water. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, pretty much. But but fortunate enough for you, it's San Diego. Um, so, so it's not directly um, on on where you live, but you're going to certainly feel the impact. Uh, yeah. That's for sure. Um, so we should call and say goodbye to Dylan now, I suppose. Yeah, I'm afraid so, Dylan, buddy. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's time to say goodbye. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Um, this show's dedicated to his memory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, with with that in mind, um, I've got kind of two questions for you. Uh, what okay. would be your immediate actions in, in finding out that you know the asteroid is going to going to hit within the next twenty four hours? Um, and then, what is your plan after it hits? The initial reaction is probably going to be a bit of a freak out, followed by some sort of inaudible shriek, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Um, after that, I actually did a little bit of research as to what people might actually do in such an instance. Mm-hmm. And my wife's family has a cabin up in the hills or up in the mountains of California. So I feel like our best course of action would be to collect the animals or dogs, get some non-perishable foods and water, and head up to that cabin to sort of wait out further instruction. Nice man. Um, that so sounds, a time share, that so we great. have to fight. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, against other people. That's that's quite right. Um, but that sounds like a very sensible approach. Yeah, I think so. For somebody who doesn't know what the hell they're doing in in such a situation, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. Um, and so uh, the plan from there is just to just to wade it out in the cabin. I think so. Yeah, just you know, as long as we have enough perishable food and don't have to pull a dog. On our party, I think we can do that. Oh gosh, yeah. Hopefully not. Um, you never know, but uh, yeah. yeah, hopefully you've, you've taken suppose. enough canned food. <laughs> yeah, our dogs would be kind of gamey, so I wouldn't really want to have to have that option. Yeah, yeah not not ideal meat, is it? Um, not in the least. Yeah, definitely. Um, right, so uh, you're you're all hunkered down in this cabin, um, mm. and the conversation of comics comes up of course um of course. and uh the first question that's asked is what is the first comic you remember enjoying the first comic i remember enjoying um <clears throat> was a book one of the spider-man books it was web of spider-man number 21 and it came out in 1986 it was given to me by an elementary school friend it was you know one of those friends that you end up acquiring in elementary school and you're at their house every weekend playing and then you never talk to them again after third grade or whatever and and i mean we you know we had fun and he this particular friend had a comic collection and he ended up giving me this book and it was my first introduction to superheroes um and it was uh, the book specifically was spider-man's suit and web slingers were stolen 
And then he had to – it was the red and blue one that was stolen. And so he had to don this black suit and kind of go after this perpetrator because the person who stole the suit and web slingers was then um, committing these sort of devious, atrocious acts to in an effort to vilify Spider-Man. So he had to kind of go after him. And later on it occurred to me that it was kind of an interesting dichotomy that was going on where, you know, it's the question of – does putting on a suit make you a hero? Um, something that was covered pretty uh, extensively in Alan Moore's Watchmen, I think a little bit more too, but yeah. it was kind of interesting to go back and visit this book years later and have a different take on it. But that was certainly my first sort of introduction and my interest in superhero books sort of waned you know, into my teenage years, but that absolutely built the foundation for my love of the art form. That's awesome. And and what age were you at this this point at school? I'm guessing I was probably seven or eight. I think the book came out when I was about six in 1986, mm. but it was probably given to me a year or two later. That's awesome. Um, and say, so, like, all all of your friends at school were into comics, or was it just you? Or no, I think it was just me and a couple other weird kids, which is why we ended up <laughs> gravitating towards one another. You just sort of end up finding your freak. You know, tribe. I guess. Sure. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a lot of people because you know comics seem to be very popular now. It would appear, but you know, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, and probably you too, like comics were not cool at all. Oh no, no, definitely not. Um, and like they, they kind of got some form of credibility now, a little bit. Yeah, um, right. they? Um, but uh, yeah, back way back when um, it was truly kind of, you know, you had to kind of, you know, get your water sticks out to divine where your, uh, your comic <laughs> right. friends were. <laughs> no, totally. It, uh, it was, yeah, it was difficult to find good <laughs> friends in the comics uh, fandom world. Definitely. Um, and so uh, kind of through your, uh, your school years, um, were you always uh, into comics or was there a period where you kind of fell out of comics or... Yeah, there's definitely a period where I fell out, uh, probably, you know, right my prepubescence into the preteens kind of era. I got really into music and playing music. And so, you know, my teenage mind went, well, being in a band is way cooler than being a comics geek. So I'm going to do that for a little while. And I had had something happen with my father, who was a professional artist, who essentially told me I had no talent. So uh, I I got, yeah, so I got into music and I did that for a a while and then ended up just finding my way back to comics in my early 20s and haven't looked back. Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, And then during this whole time, um, yeah, obviously you were. You just mentioned that you you were drawing, but did you mm-hmm. did you draw all through your teens or no 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 after that sort of so that happened with my father when I was about nine or ten ish right. and so I didn't really draw again until probably my early twenties. I just okay. kind of was starting from square one again. Yeah. Wow. So like all, all all through your teen years, there was no no real drawing or anything like that, and kind of picked it up again in your early 20s yeah those are um, the lost years of my comics history yeah that's a real shame um yeah. but uh you picked you picked it back up got back on the horse um, i did yeah definitely and as wobbly um, as that horse may have been at the time yeah, definitely and so what what really kind of motivated you to um you know go after comics 
you know. I it kind of ended up haphazardly discovering the alternative comics of sort of the 90s and early 2000s and kind of fell back in love with the art form and realized because I have more of a cartoonish style and so I, I think I had the inclination for a long time that that style doesn't work in comics because you need to have some sort of photorealism or intricate yeah. style to your work to actually make it in that field and so when I found the alternative comics people like James Kachaka and um, you know Alison Bechtel and all these people it was just kind of a lightning rod that got me back into it and, and bolstered me to believe that you know even with a cartoony style you can still make it happen absolutely that's awesome and then where, yeah. when was your your first your first creation oh uh that was probably because i started out trying to get into comic strip syndication with newspapers and of course i started this just as the newspaper industry was kind of mm. on their last leg and shaking the death rattle um, but that was my first sort of venture. So I was starting to submit to syndicates, American syndicates, in the early 2000s, probably around 2002 or 2003. Awesome. Um, and then it just kind of went from there? Or? Yeah, and so it was, again, the, the newspaper circulation and print medium in general was kind of starting to take a downward slide for especially for periodicals like that right. and so then i was urged by a friend to start trying to create comics and i did one with him and so that kind of led me down the dark path to comic books and graphic novels <laughs> nice man um, yeah. so, and so the uh the, the next question uh crops up in the cabin um and that is what's the funniest or the comic that made you laugh out loud the most so there, you know, there are like several of these that I could think of, but one that I really wanted to talk about, and I, I think it has a decent audience, but uh, it's the K Chronicles by a guy named Keith Knight, and it started out as an alternative weekly, and it's sort of this semi-autobiographical uh, series that Keith did for many, many years, um, and he just has this just hilarious and very unique method of distilling his experiences into just mind boggling and hilarious social commentary and satire and editorials on what's happening. He has like a love affair with sheep and conversations with God, which is depicted as a hamster and a rivalry with his quote unquote evil twin sister. It's, just across the board and some of it is incredibly poignant as well but i've just never laughed as hard as a lot of the absurdist humor that he represents or that he uh has in that comic that's awesome and where's that published uh he it's mostly online now yeah. uh i think he mostly does it as and i think it's just the kchronicles.com because he was in the he was one of the weekly newspaper artists at mm. that time in the 90s and early 2000s but again of course when newspaper circulation started going of course the alt weeklies pretty much disappeared as well and so he mainly was doing online stuff i found him through the collections that he was hawking at like comic cons and stuff and i ended up meeting him because he, he and i were living in the bay area at the same time and i got involved with the cartoon art museum so 
uh, he was actually one of the first professionals that I got to meet as well. And he was always really encouraging and, and just a really classy dude. And he now has a show, I think it's with Hulu, that's um, being produced right now called Woke. That's kind of based on this comic as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. He's just he's a hilarious guy. And, and his style is, to me, it looks very much like the old rubber hose animation. So the, right. you know, the limbs are kind of rubbery and the reactions are extreme. But, yeah, it's, it's a really great strip. That's awesome, man. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's always good to have that kind of that strip, strip to go back to um, that's, you know, always going to be a guaranteed laugh, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of, you know, it's almost a feeling of nostalgia at this point, too, because, yeah. again, it was one of the first um, collections of comics that I found when I was in my 20s where I went, oh, okay, you can have sort of a simpler cartoony style and still mm. you know deliver kind of poignant or thought-provoking content and which he always did uh so yeah it's it's great to still have those and revisit them from time to time that's nice man great yeah uh, now changing gears uh the next the ne- yeah, yeah exactly uh, the next question that comes up is what's the saddest or most upsetting comic that you've read the conversation in this cabin is an emotional roller coaster. Let me it, tell you, it is, man. I, I like to go uh, up and down. <laughs> the the saddest or most upsetting. Um, it's one that I read actually in the past probably a few years, maybe five years. But it's a book called Rosalie Lightning by Tom Hart. Yeah, and it is an absolutely gut wrenching memoir about the untimely death of his very young daughter Rosalie, and so the book is. I, I mean, I'm sure it was a way for him to process all of the emotions. Mm-hmm. And he just uses these impassioned illustrations to show him and his wife's search for meaning, like perpetual search in the aftermath of this horrible tragedy. And it explores grief and loss and eventually hope. Um, and it's just an absolutely heartbreaking book and completely worth reading for anybody and especially if somebody who's suffered a similar loss i think it could be probably very comforting for them to show kind of how tom and again his wife navigated this absolutely senseless loss yeah definitely and i mean total props to to tom and his wife for for taking this on because I can't imagine what it was like during the process of actually creating it. Absolutely, um, as I, well because yeah. you know this isn't the type of thing that you just create on an afternoon. It's no, you know, it must have taken really months, maybe years, um, and just the emotional uh, emotional roller coaster. Um, to use yeah. your phrase from earlier, you know, it's that must have been absolutely upsetting. And how terrifying at the prospect of actually releasing it to to the public, you know, because then you're not only reeling from the effects of what happened, then you're also opening yourself up to the, you know, um, the jury of public opinion. (laughs) And that's that's always kind of frightening. Oh, gosh, yeah, that must have been absolutely terrifying. But, uh, yeah, um, Rosalie uh, Lightning. Um, is is one that's come up a couple of times, and and, and rightly so. 
um, yeah. extremely um, upsetting comic. But um, you know, as you as you said earlier, it's hopefully you know can be helpful for those that have been in a similar situation, um, and you know might be therapeutic for them as well. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was for him and probably his wife too. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, now, moving on uh, to our next question, uh, that is, uh, what's the scariest or most horrifying comic that you've read? So I, I had listened to some other uh, episodes in preparation for this, and I think maybe I took scariest or horrifying a little bit differently than most other people because they were all talking about horror comics. Yeah. So horrifying to me can be you know across the gamut from something like horror or something that's just emotionally horrifying, which is yes. kind of the road that I took because yeah. I chose Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Right. So as a Jew myself, the, the book was horrifying mm-hmm. and scary for obvious reasons with the depictions of Holocaust atrocities. Um, and then being an animal rights guy with the anthropomorphizing the characters, I think that added a level of you know <laughs> unsettling disquietude for me. Um, but then there's this other layer because Art has stated in interviews that it was really meant as a way to record his father's memories. And he, it was it's clear and he's stated that he and his father didn't have the best relationship. So this other layer of a son trying to connect with his father while his father's slipping away just kind of compounds that already ominous tone. And so for me, yeah, it's a completely unsettling read, but one I think everybody should read. And I'm, I mean, I know Mouse is a really well-known book, so uh, I, I can't imagine people would disagree <laughs> with that um, assessment. Oh, no, not at all. Um, it's, a, it's a very horrifying uh, book, emotionally horrifying, certainly. Yeah, beautifully is- done, yeah, yeah, but just, yeah, absolutely horrific. Because uh, when, when did you come across that? Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, I was probably... It was probably when I was getting back into comics in my early 20s. Cause, oh, really? Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, Mouse and Persepolis, I know they were both published in the 80s, I think. And my wife had actually read it before me because their school, which was a little bit better of a school in the you know, Bay Area, they had it as required reading, whereas I don't think my school knew what a graphic novel was. And (laughs) so I I came to it a little later in life, but of course had an automatic connection with it and, you know, couldn't put it down (laughs) once I picked it up. Yeah. Uh, Because that must must be quite an experience as as a Jew um, to to read that. Absolutely. But I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, and and I think it even took art by surprise because, again, he was just sort of doing it as an exercise in recording these recollections of a period of his dad's life. And it turned out to be this, you know, momentous, you know, milestone in graphic novel and comics history. So mm-hmm. that must have been something else to experience, too, on his end. But certainly for me reading it, yeah, I was automatically drawn in. Well, that's incredible, no doubt. Um, amazing. Um, so yeah, definitely. If you haven't read Mouse uh, by by Art Spiegelman, definitely go go check it out. It's uh, it's quite a read. Yeah, you know what the crazy thing is too. Just as a yeah, little on. footnote, he actually drew the pages at saw at the size that it was printed. 
with a fountain pen, which is always Whoa. just crazy to me for that kind of detail. And, and that, I mean, it makes sense because they feel very much like sketches and a lot of that looseness is lost in the inking process. So it makes sense, but still just that little factoid always kind of blew my mind. Yeah, that is just, yeah, it's mind blowing. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? When you find out stuff like that, it's like, yeah, my God, <laughs> fair play, mate. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, now, uh, moving on to uh, one of my favorite questions, and that is, uh, what is your favorite cover? So, yeah, this one, I just kind of went with the first cover that I can remember that stuck with me, and I had to look up the number, to be fair. But it's sure. Batman 222, and it's titled Dead Till Proven Alive, and it always right. stuck with me because I was a huge Beatles fan as a kid, still am. Yeah. And this was an issue where they did sort of a parody of the Beatles satirizing Mm -hmm. the Paul is dead phenomenon. And so I just remember this, this cover where Batman and Robin are watching these faux Beatles walk towards them. And there it was back when they still had dialogue on the covers. Do you remember that? I don't think they do that anymore, but I always loved that. And they were sort of having this discussion on the cover of one of them is dead, but which one? And you know, it was, (laughs) it was kind of hilarious. But that yeah, that image always stuck out to me because they're in a graveyard, as I recall too, and Robin sort of holding the the album cover. <laughs> um, so that one always always stuck with me again because of the Beatles connection, and then it had a lot of the the Bam Biff action that I also loved from the really campy '60s series. Sure. Yeah. So, so that's one, and that also led me because that was my aunt. She had this, or still has this huge collection of golden and silver age comics and everything from the old Harvey books, you know, Richie rich and all of those all the way through the DC and Marvel stuff from that time. And somewhere there's even the first appearance of Ra's al Ghul in in one of her Batman books, which is pretty crazy, but I always rifled through those as a kid. And that's the one that just stuck with me. That's awesome. And it's always good at looking at the prices and it's 15 cents. Oh, I know. <laughs> Gosh, just imagine if it was 15 cents today for an issue. <laughs> That's, yeah. What is it, about, you know, 2,000 times what, <laughs> 15 cents? That, yeah, about that, I think, these days. Um, <laughs> but uh, what, what a time, you know. Um, yeah. Just need a, what's that, a dime and a nickel. Um, no, I know. It's crazy. It's nuts, isn't it? Um, that's how much that's bread it. costs too, I guess. <laughs> yeah, as well, insane. <laughs> uh, but no, it's a really cool cover. So you kind of got mm-hmm. the Beatles all, all lined up on the right-hand side, walking away from a from a grave that's just been dug up, apparently. Yeah, um, and very I'm morbid sure. and wonderful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it's is it? Do you think it's maybe John Lennon at the front, or is it Paul McCartney with glasses? I don't know. No, I think it's the John character, and is, and there's that, yeah. a great little kind of twist on the whole Paul is dead hoax or mythos or whatever in that comic that I remember. Right, of course, uh, yeah. So it's worth a read if people can find it. Definitely. Oh, that's really cool. Awesome. I don't know how readily available it would be these days, but I'm sure it's online somewhere. Yeah, you can definitely find it online, no doubt. Um, cool. Uh, and then uh, moving on to one of our most interesting questions, mm. uh, and that is what is the most meaningful comic to you so you know again there's there's things like mouse and other books that have been very meaningful to me for different reasons but i went with one that sort of touches on what i was talking about earlier where 
there was this incident with my father, who was a professional commercial artist, who essentially told me I had no talent and will never be an artist and had that great interaction with my father. And uh, yeah, in, in my, maybe that's too heavy for, well, I guess it's eight o'clock there. So you're, you're fine. No, it's so good. Or, or like five o'clock there. Um, <laughs> so in my early twenties after, you know, having a, just kind of ditched that aspiration because I didn't believe I would ever do anything with it. I found the movie Chasing Amy by Kevin Smith and you know, the movie's fine, whatever, but there's the characters, blunt man and chronic that the, the main characters in the movie are comic creators and they've created this book. So the artwork after doing some, you know, digging I found was by a guy named Mike Allred and his book was Madman, which is a phenomenal series. If, Nobody's read it, but I think it's fairly well known at this point. Um, but that had such, you know, a cartoony, like almost Jack Kirby, Golden Silver Age look to it. And it was really one of the first books that I picked up where it struck me that you can have a style that's stylized and a little bit more simplistic than, you know, something like a Mike Golden drawing or or Todd McFarlane you know your your work doesn't have to be drowning in lines Mm. and it just completely motivated me to kind of get back into drawing and and start working on comics again um and and the the book Madman is just this fantastic combination of like all the pulp all all the best things about pulp comics and golden age comics and sci-fi and b- movies uh it's just this fantastic convergence of all of those influences so i love it to this day and and mike allred is just uh, amazing talent that's awesome and, and when did you come across that i think it was about 22 um when oh, i was just yeah when i was yeah. just getting back into comics my friends and i started going to san diego comic-con at that time right. uh when when the tickets for the weekend were about 70 bucks and i think there's something like 350 now gonna say that's changed (laughs) oh yeah well there you could also walk around the floor pretty comfortably in stark contrast to the sardine can that it is now um but yeah so we were getting back into it and i discovered it that way and yeah yeah and it's just it's been that touchstone for me where i i kind of you know can look back and say yeah that's the book that got me back into it Oh, that's awesome, man. It's great to have that touchstone. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of yeah. reflect on it and things. Right. And, you know, I, and it's definitely been an influence on my work as well. But just for that, I don't know, sort of emotional or, you know, uh, contact with it. Yeah, man, definitely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Then have you, have you ever met Mark? I did very briefly. Actually, he did... I don't know if you remember, he did an X-Force run, which then turned into X-Statics. Okay. So the first issue of X-Statics, I actually have a signed copy from him. Oh, nice. Great. Mm-hmm. And was that at San Diego? Or yeah, it was. It was. Oh, that's and awesome. And so that's when I found out he was a Mormon, which I didn't know beforehand. And, right. <laughs> you know, enough. you have the... You have the brief interaction with them when you when you go up to get your book signed, and yeah. I had brought up Bluntman and Chronic, and he said, "Oh, that's a dirty book." <laughs> that was his only oh, response to it, and I went, "Okay, did I just 
completely mess up any chance of ever being Mike Allred's friend? Probably. <laughs> oh, it's so good, man. It's so good. Um, yeah, because that was a possibility anyway. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's it, man. Fantastic. Um, so like delusional I, idea we were going to be besties after that or something. Yeah, of course. I've, I've, I've been there, and it's like, no, yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. Come on, yeah. get yourself together, man. Walk away, child. Walk exactly. away. Exactly. Walk away. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so the next question that comes up is, what's the most underrated comic that you've read? One for me that that came to mind was a book called Blue Monday, or a series called Blue Monday by China Clugston. And she was Cl- China Clugston major at the time, divorced her partner, and now she's China Clugston Flores, I believe. But she was China Clugston major when Blue Monday was out, and it was just so so ahead of its time. I believe it was published by Oni Press, um, a publisher here in the States. And it, it was mid-90s or early 90s, and it was tackling things like misogyny and LGBTQ visibility and bullying long before it was, you know, those were sort of the omnipresent issues that they are today. Right. And I found it pretty soon after graduating high school myself and it's it's based around the protagonists are high school characters and her portrayal of the like teenage outcast experience was just spot on and i was not necessarily as uh disregarded as the characters in blue monday but i certainly felt like an outcast myself uh and so it felt very familiar to me and she was also employing uh, like a manga inspired style which seems to be way more prevalent these days mm-hmm. to me i mean to my perspective but she was doing it way back when it was you know when manga i don't even think was that popular here yet so yeah the series blue monday was just ahead of its time and i don't think it reached the wide audience that it deserved fair play man i mean how big is it sorry I don't know how big the run is, and I, I hate saying there that. Um, volumes, I, there are multiple volumes because there were she, as as I recall, she did it in sort of chunks of specific storylines. So she would do a four book storyline or a six book storyline, and they were released in that way. I think as opposed to just a, a full on run. Yeah, I mean, then just quickly on on <clears throat> on Amazon, one of the uh, pull quotes is from uh, Kieran Gill- Gillen um, of w- Wicked and Divine fame. Um, oh, yeah. Who says, a, a generation owes Blue Monday. It's the missing link. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's what he's got to say about it. <laughs> See, he says it much better than I could, but that's that's my <laughs> feeling as well. <laughs> it's, you know, there's all of these just absolutely brilliant uh, indie comics that I think were lost in the 90s because yeah. the scene hadn't, like the comics fandom hadn't quite caught up with them yet. Things like, Milk and Cheese from Evan Dorkin, uh-huh. or even like Hate from Peter Bag. You know, there's all these this great indie work that was out there that it was not getting its due at the time. But I think Blue Monday was one of the, you know, big for me one of the biggest. Yeah, I'll definitely have to properly check that out. Yeah, I would. I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, that's cool, man. Excellent. Um, now we come on to one of the most difficult questions. Um, and that is for you, what is the best comic of all time? That was a difficult question, and I kind of yes. agonized over it because I'm an obsessive person. So, you know, you go Good, through all right. the, yeah, you <laughs> go through all these that. things in your, no, no, that's fine. You, you, you kind of have to focus, so it was okay. But 
you know, and I think people have said this too on the show where you could pick your best comic for, you know, different genres or different uh, responses or all those things. But for me, one that always comes to mind when I have this question is Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers. And the reason for that is, number one, there's just a plethora of it because they started in the 80s and it's still going, even though albeit a little slower today. But Mm -hmm. there's just this huge backlog to pour over. And it's everything you could want in a comic, everything I want in a comic anyway. And it's these beautiful illustrations with masterful pacing, comedy, drama, punk rock, sci-fi, profanity, you know, just the distilled human condition. And, you know, kind of like China Cluxton Major at the time, you know, they were confronting things in the 80s that were still a little taboo and things like racism and pro-choice. And, you know, they covered them with just this absolute, you know, lack of fear in putting them out. And I know I had listened to some interviews with them. And I think part of that is because they were doing most of it, at least in the beginning, as self-published books. So they didn't have any editor or any larger entity telling them that they can't do it. So they just kind of did whatever they wanted. And then they were picked up by Fantagraphics later on, which also has a great catalog of books, but they, their writing and there were three of them. I think mostly Gilbert and Jaime were the ones who did the love and rockets books, but just the amount of stories and variety in the storylines at this point is just overwhelming in a good way. Yeah. Um, and for me personally, you know, obviously being of Mexican descent, I mean, I think only the older brother was actually born in Mexico, but right. uh, th- th- a lot of their stories focused on the Latinx community, mm-hmm. which for me felt like home because I grew up here in Salinas, even though I moved away to the Bay Area for a bit, I came back, but I grew up here and it was steeped very heavily in Mexican culture and many of my close friends, I grew up around their families. So it, it felt like something that was very comforting to me and I, I felt connected to it almost immediately. So it's for all of those reasons and more, I chose Love and Rockets as the best comic of all time. Too right, man. That sounds perfect for you. Yeah. Um, and uh, I actually got did, to meet them too, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I went. I got invited to exhibit and try not to laugh too hard at a Latino Comics Expo in, in Northern there's, California. There's no reason to laugh about that. <laughs> well, you know, the, and they're the organizers are very cool about you yeah. know they want to be more inclusive. They're not trying to say this is just for the Latinx community. Oh, but, right, yeah, okay, yeah. Right. And I had been introduced to them, and they kind of knew my history too, and so they were happy to include me. But the Hernandez brothers were the the big you know celebrity guests there, so yeah. I got to talk to them, which was just I think one of the and probably will be one of the highlights of my career. That's awesome, man. Um, and and was that during kind of your your uh, your early twenties that you came across Love and Rockets, or did you come across it before that? Yeah, no, that was another one that I discovered in my early twenties when I was kind of getting back into mm. the the groove of you know discovering alternative comics. And again, that one had been around long before I started discovering it, so it was course, a yeah. bit of a deep dive to catch up <laughs> at that point. And That's I fun, certainly though, haven't. Tried, have yeah, it that. really is. 
and I certainly am not even caught up on everything, but I've read more than enough to know that it's phenomenal. Oh, that's fantastic, man. Great. Um, now, uh, we're, we're now on to our last question in regards to comics. Okay. Um, and, and that is, if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? So, again, I listened to some interviews before this one, and I guess I didn't realize, probably because I'm a half-wit, that this was supposed to be one of the comics from... Oh, no, no, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't doesn't have to be now. I've I've changed it. So that's why you you answered as you did. So you're you're totally in the right. (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, so the one I chose uh, was the Smithsonian Collection of Newspaper Comic Strips. And my grandparents gave this to me when I was just a wee lad. Uh, And it has all of these amazing cartoonists, uh, like people that became influences to me for certain, like Roy Crane, Chester Gold, Walt Kelly, Lynn Johnston. And this book covers everything from The Yellow Kid, which was one of the first comic strips, all the way through what was current at the time, which I think was the mid-90s, so there were things like Peanuts in there and Garfield. And it is just this weighty tome that I poured over as a kid, and it may have even kind of served as my first drafting table. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) But so the reason I would bring that is, number one, it has all of those influences and creators that I love, and number two, because of its weight, it could double as a weapon. Should there be like rioting or looting, you, you yeah. smack somebody in the head with that, they're probably going down. Definitely, it's, it's, it's a solid uh, three hundred and thirty-six pages, according to uh, according to Amazon. Yeah, and it's coffee table size, so yeah, it, it's a you big know, it's, yeah, it's a good weapon. It's you know, like a mace or yeah, <laughs> and it's got the Smithsonian stamp on it as well. So surely that's extra, kind of you know, extra oomph. When yeah, so they should be honored to be smacked in the face with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so alongside your uh, your collection of uh, Smithsonian newspaper comic strips, mm-hmm. um, what uh, what weapon, tool, or useful item would you like to take with you? So I got a little bit of thinking about this. And, uh, you know, my wife and I are fairly outdoorsy. I'm just, I'm not that organized of a person. And I think that might be a through line with artists or creators. We sort of... Uh, thrive in chaos i suppose (laughs) and so what i thought though i was going to say something like an ipod because i i have music as a distraction for sometimes for my anxiety or things but Mm -hmm. i also thought well power might be out after this asteroid collision so if power goes out well the ipod's going to be dead pretty quickly so something that would be far more useful i figured was something like a mag light a a a big flashlight with batteries because if power is out or you're up in the mountains like i said i think a flashlight would be a great tool to have plus the mag lights are pretty weighty themselves so also another weapon definitely Uh, those mag lights yeah so some of them are specifically designed to be uh be batons as well as you know flashlights oh yeah absolutely (laughs) i I mean the the fact that they make them that heavy i mean that that begs the question as to whether or not they were supposed to also be used as a weapon. Exactly. Because why the hell does a flashlight need to be that heavy otherwise? Ridiculous, isn't it? But, uh, yeah. You know. Does um, it make well, sense? No, not really. But um, you've got it, um, along with your, <laughs> uh, your collection of newspaper comic strips. Right, so um, we're set. 
Oh yeah, all sets. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. The Smithsonian um, collection may even stop a bullet. So if somebody yeah. does come in with a rifle, I don't know. That could be <laughs> you useful. Be, you should have it on your chest. I'd be devastated. You know, always wear it on but, your chest, just in yeah. case. <laughs> but then I could give it a proper burial and and thank it for yeah. its service. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's ideal. Uh, well, Alex <laughs> Schumacher, thank you so much for sharing your comics for the apocalypse. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely, Sam. Thanks for having me on, man. Fantastic. And uh, just for the listeners, one more time, where can they find you on the interwebs? My main site is alexschumacherart.com, and then I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at ajschumacherart, both of those fantastic uh, well thanks again Alex it's been a real pleasure um, and uh, hopefully our paths will cross one day at a comic con near you yeah that'd be great and I'll, I'll definitely bug you on Twitter so oh, don't worry do. about please losing do. contact with me <laughs> oh definitely I'll definitely see you on Twitter yeah I'll be the gum you can't get off your shoe <laughs> perfect <laughs> awesome Alex appreciate that buddy yep no problem Sam thank you bye for now bye Thanks again to Alex for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but I believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. And if you'd like to check out Alex's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes, along with all of our own links to the various areas of the internet. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you in the new year. Bye for now.